Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is supported by our friends at Bank Australia. If you didn't know, Bank Australia is a 100% customer-owned, responsible bank. Its purpose is to create mutual prosperity for its customers, the communities they live in, and the planet we all live on. Hi, I'm Jane Nethercote digital editor at Dumbo Feather magazine, and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. We caught up recently with Noni Hazelhurst, Australian actor, beloved Play School presenter and dead set legend. For those not from Australia, Play School is the national broadcaster's long-running kids show. It's a fixture of almost every person's childhood. A few months back, Noni was inducted into Australian TV's Hall of Fame. She used the platform to tell us some home truths, saying she feared our hearts are growing cold. In a world awash with bad news reflecting our basest instincts, what we really need, she said, is a positive news TV channel, a place that features nothing but stories that inspire us and reassure us that there are good things happening and good people in the world, something to restore our empathy and heal our hearts. Obviously, we had to speak with her. Noni set the mood on the night with a frank speech about the current media landscape, then she settled in for a big chat with our assistant editor, Nathan Scalaro. Fittingly, this conversation, which was held in collaboration with our great mates at this School of Life, took place just next to the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Sydney Opera House. So many Aussie icons in the one spot. And just before we hand you over to Nathan and Noni, this is Beck, the producer. Just letting you know, we had some issues recording this conversation, so at times it gets noisy, but we promise it's worth it to hear Noni's pearls of wisdom. Good evening, everyone. And it's, um, it's a real pleasure for me to be up here with Noni, someone who I watched throughout my childhood, um, talking about storytelling, which is central to the work we do at Tumblr Feather. We've been so looking forward to sitting down with Noni ever since seeing that spectacular address uh, at the Logies in which she really held up a mirror to to the culture of entertainment and this constant cloud of negativity that we are bombarded with on a daily basis and pointed us somewhere brighter, really, to stories where struggle is something to be learned from and our vulnerabilities are something to embrace rather than something to defend and guard. Stories that ultimately unite us, even in our external differences, rather than tear us apart. Um, Noni's parents were vaudevillian performers in England, um, and she was raised, I read, on British variety shows and British comedies, and it's here that I'd really love to start our conversation in the culture of your childhood, Noni. Sure. Um, well, my parents, uh, they were on the fourth generation performer in the family, and um my sons are doomed to be the fifth. Um, they, they, just before the Second World War, 
they um, got married and they met when they were on the same bill and Dad went to fight in India and uh, they were apart for seven years. Decided to migrate to Australia in 1950 because England was rooted, basically. <laughs> it was, it was horrible. And also television was coming in, so that meant the end of vaudeville and touring shows and so on. So they 10 pound pondered out to Australia with my brother. And so, yes, they, they were incredible people because once they realised I had some talent and, and passion, they made sure that I had every possible skill that I would need. I learned ballet, I learned calisthenics, I learned piano. My father taught me how to sing, but they didn't make me do anything professional, for which I was really grateful. Um, but they, they impressed upon me how hard you have to work to sustain yourself in the arts. Um, so I had a very different view going into performing than, than many people do, particularly today, you know, when you're seduced by thinking like 15 minutes of fame might last 16 minutes if I'm lucky. Um, so they taught me that the industry doesn't only a living. But they were also very, what I call, true Christian people, as opposed to people who pretend to be Christian, um, while perpetrating cruelty and abuse on other people. But they were very humble. They were very honest. They were very appreciative of the best talent in the world. And so they taught me from a very young age what was good and what was bad. And my mother used to say that the bad acts used a lot of tricky lighting. The good ones just stood in a spotlight and did it. And that really impressed me because what do we see now, you know, the, the kind of bells and whistles that pass for entertainment now. And so my father would, you know, they'd sit me down and watch the great comics and the great singers and the great dancers, and he would critique them for me. So I understood very early, you know, what was good and what was bad. And but they also forced me to go to university. They had something to fall back on because of their experience of the business. So I was really, really lucky. The downside of my childhood was that they, we had no relatives in Australia. And my brother was 12 years old, he's 12 years older than me. So I was virtually an only child from the age of five. And I didn't know until later, my mother was actually agoraphobic. And so she, uh, she had a lot of secrets, my mum. But what she did give me was this incredible love of language and literature. Because there were no other kids around, my imagination was allowed to run free. And she encouraged that and read stories to me. My, my favourite Christmas present was a box of books, you know, so I was very lucky in that. And you went on to study drama, and I'm curious about when you came to find your voice, uh, because I think uh, in performance it would be particularly difficult because you were taught always to portray someone else, and so you have this outer world that's going on, um, but the true beauty is discovering your inner world, and so when did those two kind of come together for you? Well, it's kind of meandered along almost without my knowing for a long time, but the person who really, um, a huge influence on my life latterly is my acting guru. He's a man called Larry Moss and he's a remarkable man. He has a book called Intent to Live, which I recommend to anybody who's interested in the arts, I guess. I, I did a workshop with him, um, it's the scariest thing I've ever done, um, about five years ago, but he removed from me for all time nerves because he said, people don't come to see you, they come to see themselves. And I went, oh, wow. Because particularly as a female, I was brought up to think it was all about me. You know, you have to look nice, you have to be nice, you're going to be judged, you're going to be assessed, you better be good, you know, and this sort of stuff, this pressure. And to suddenly go, oh, all I have to do is tell the story. 
because the story is a human story. And my job as a performer is to serve the writer, the great writers who write to serve humanity. And I, to that point, I've been very arrogant. I, I'm sort of going, oh, I know Tennessee Williams. I've seen a couple of Tennessee Williams. But he forced me to forensically examine these great plays and what a world is in them when you actually do. I mean, I became a teacher after I worked with Larry because I realised that I wanted to communicate the things that I learned as a performer. But I think it was play school that, that made me understand that we all act all the time. Acting's easy. Being is hard. And that's where young children are so, so valuable because they haven't been taught to act. That's our job as parents and yeah. society, you know, yeah. to kind of calm down, act your age. <laughs> yes, they have to be socially acceptable to some extent, but a lot of what we do is, is strip away that individuality and, and say, you know, how many people said, I was six before I realised my name wasn't Go Outside and my brother's name wasn't you too. You know? <laughs> It's not go outside, now it's go and play, you know, some sort of game or, or some sort of screen activity. And so, um, yeah. And, um, I was going to say that children have the highest bullshit detectors oh, as well, which is, yeah. I think, would be a big challenge for you and, and a big learning for you in your time at play school. It was, yeah, because I had, had nothing to do with small children. Nothing. It's not you know? Totally. And so the first year I did it, I was kind of, oh, hello, and very, you know, <laughs> And, uh, and I sort of came to realise that if I'm not actually present, and, you know, we rehearsed the show five times before we taped it, and we used to tape it as, as live, as a continuous half hour, so it was very organic. And a child, if I'm not there, if I'm patronising the child or worried about what the crew behind the camera think of me bending over singing on the hill out humping... Um, <laughs> A child would just go, a two-year-old just go, oh, ant. <laughs> because that's spontaneous. And I think I said in the Logie speech, the program's about kittens and puppies work because kittens and puppies are real and spontaneous. They're not scripted. You know, and, and that, that speech, I just want to say about that speech, I was so scared doing that because I really thought it'll only take three tablefuls of network executives down the front to go, oh, God. <laughs> Um, and I could kill the evening stone motherless dead here. <laughs> but what really thrilled me was that I, well, I, the overwhelmingly positive response, but I think because people are so unused to seeing people speak from the heart on television, that they kind of went, and, and listened. And, and that's what young children have taught me, that, you know, I can act a role, and I will act a role every interaction I have with people. I'm not being totally me. I'm putting on a version of myself that's appropriate, and that's what we all do every day. But the challenge is to do it consciously so that we can also just, with some people in our lives, just be. Yeah. Just be present and it's mindfulness and it's all those things. It's just what young children do quite naturally. And it just reminds me how much we underestimate about childhood, right? We associate children with innocence and naivete when sometimes I look at children and I think they have the most wisdom of all of us, right? Well, I think that's because we're constantly judging each other. You know, I had the great, great privilege of hosting a Q&A with Ellen Burstyn, the wonderful American actress, who at 82, hopped on a plane, came out here, no minders, just, you know, came out and did a five-day straight workshop with actors and 
did some Q&As, and she's a Sufi. And she said that the Sufis asked her to give up tea, coffee, alcohol, drugs, and judgment. <laughs> and she said the hardest is judgment. She said, I struggle with it every day. And, and this is this reductionist, you know, we, we feel like, oh, you're just an actor, oh, you're just a housewife, oh, you're just a kid. No, we're all incredibly complex, but we've been frightened into thinking we can't show our complexities because it makes us vulnerable. Um, you know, nobody's just one thing. And, and I used to also think that before I had kids, that kids were just an amorphous group. I did not realise the utter importance of that preschool age group. Mm because more connections are made in the brain in the first couple of years of life than in the rest of their life put together. So unless a child has a caring adult to contextualise things for them, until they're about five, they can't tell the difference between the news and an ad and an animation and unless somebody explains it to them. And, you know, as I said, there are now parents who've never known life without all these screens as well. So. What worries me is that their world is diminishing, and so they are diminishing because they're not being exposed to things because they don't know they exist. Mm. Um, to get back to the, the judgment and the othering that we do, I was thinking about this a couple of days ago, that when our uh, inner world is empty and we don't have a good sense of ourselves, then the way we try to identify ourselves is by comparing ourselves to others and making judgments about others. And suddenly that is how we define ourselves, not by who is true within us and who is truly ourselves, but by others. And we need more stories, we need more theatre and, and all kinds of storytelling that tells us to know ourselves, really. Well, we have to have the confidence to ask people these stories yeah. and to tell our stories. One of the things I find really liberating is when, when we do share our stories that we always find we have more in common than we thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, it's staggering to me. There was this wonderful program that some libraries, um, I don't know if it's still going, that you could rent, you could borrow a person for half an hour. And so they, they had, you know, they had um, uh, African people, um, Muslim people, and you could book in and chat to them for half an hour and just share their experiences. Wonderful idea, wonderful idea. Um, you know, and these are the things that, that give us hope, but we're not hearing about them. This is what gives me the screaming willies, you know, that there is so much good going on in the world and so many great people doing so many fabulous things, but we don't hear about them. Um, I remember, just spring to mind, when, the, when there were a few Anzac soldiers still alive, I remember watching some fellow called Jack, who was 104, and, the journalist said, you know, what's the best thing about Anzac Day, Jack? And he said, well, for a couple of weeks every year, people don't talk to me like I'm an idiot. <laughs> so there's that judgment again, you know, that, oh, you're an old bloke, you must be an idiot. And then, Hello, do you want a cup of tea? <laughs> you know, it's, and, and again, we reduce everybody. We judge, you know, we think, you know, and yet you've got heartaches, you've got regrets, you've been an idiot. You know, oh, I wanted to start this thing called the Fuckwits Club. <laughs> it was part of my age, but, but a dear friend of mine who, you know, had a brain the size of a small planet was had done something really stupid in his personal life. He was like, oh, that's such a problem. I said, welcome to the club. You know, I mean, we've all done things that we regret. We've all done things that we wish we hadn't. But we've also all got some triumphs. We've all got some great moments. But also the myth of happiness. You know, happiness is not something you get to. 
happiness is something that comes and sits on your shoulder for a minute and then flies off again. So there's this myth that if you have X, Y, and Z, you will be happy. is such a crock. Because, you know, a bird can make you happy. A, a flower can make you happy. But if you're not seeing that stuff... Yeah, and I think this is what's missing in so much of the mainstream media, the joy that can be found in the ordinary details that make up a life. Well, so I said, if it hasn't got a value, it doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, if it's not a commercially viable thing, forget it. Mm. It's not going to be there. Something that strikes me listening to you and seeing all your advocacy work is that you are an antidote, I would say, an antidote to cynicism. And I was listening to a podcast the other day with the author Paulo Coelho, who wrote The Alchemist, and he was talking about how we've become so cynical about the word love and, and words like kindness. And he's saying to the interviewer, uh, why, why do you use the word cheesy when you talk about love? This is this, this Portuguese accent. Why do we say cheese when we talk about the most important word, the most important emotion you know, of our lives? And I think that's so true, you know? Well, why are films that deal with emotions called cheek flicks? Yeah. Or cheeklish. How offensive is that? You know, but it's, it's all part of that. You're too emotional, you're too sensitive. How can you be too sensitive? How can you be too emotional? You know, how does being those things lead to trouble? To me, being non-emotional and not sensitive is the dangerous path. You know, to be desensitised is the thing that is anti-human to me. Um, but, you know, how many times have all the women in the audience been told they're, you know, overreacting and too emotional and too sensitive? Well, I pride myself on my sensitivity. And, and that was actually the, the thing that drove me to write that speech for the Logies an hour before I had to go there. Um, I was so angry that I'd been told from the top not to feel empathy for people who were suffering. Don't get misty-eyed, he said. And I was so furious because I thought, how dare you tell me how to feel or not to feel? Because not feeling has been the reason so much agony has been perpetrated into the world, in the world historically, you know. And, and again, this is where the arts can have such value because we learn. When we see ourselves reflected, we learn. I have to tell you, it's wonderful. There's a book called The Theatre of War, What Ancient Greek Tragedies Can Teach Us Today. Uh, the author, Brian Dorries, offers a truly extraordinary, more or less spectacular demonstration of how tragedy can do you good. How listening to actors recite the words of Sophocles around a table has led masses of veterans to confront their grief and their post-traumatic stress disorder at being the forlorn survivors of war. Our prison officers and prisoners have seen the face of their own confinement in the plight of Aeschylus Prometheus, and people have been helped to face the question of how to assist the dying by experiencing women of Trachis. You know, so if you're not getting the, this, the works of these great writers in your lives, you have no chance to see yourself. You're just seeing a world that you're not part of. You know, television is full of presenters who seem to be having a party you're not invited to. Whereas high school spoke to you. Just you. And so it got an interactive response from the child. It's not rocket science, but it seems to be, because it's gone so far the other way. And so this channel that you um, suggested we, have, we watch... Still watching that? Yeah. <laughs> have you thought much about... Oh, God. <laughs> There's a lot of ideas. I, I would love, you know, the stuff that we know. If, if you start the day with a small meditation, 
you're going to have a better day, right? So instead of, you know, the mad exercise things that go on, why not have some yoga and some meditation, guided meditation at about breakfast time? We know that kids do better at school if they have this sort of opportunity before school. But I would also like to feature the best entertainers in the world um, so that people can see what it is they're striving for. You were mentioning before um, the four great influences of your life, um, being your parents, the acting coach that you mentioned before. Um, you said your children, which I was, I'm really interested to hear more about. The fourth one was? Play school. Play right. I was going to cover that street. Yeah, my children have been a huge influence in my life. But they've also, you know, as they've moved through teenagerhood and, you know, they've come from a broken home and most of their friends have too and um, they've suffered from anxiety and depression and stress. And I remember taking William when he was about 15 and, and he was really suffering from anxiety to, to see a counsellor. And we were going in a cab and the cab driver had the news on. And William just leaned to me and he said, Mum, could you ask him to turn that off? And he says, it's just really upsetting me. And it was the usual, you know, man gets shot, person gets raped, and woman's getting murdered. And, and so, because I can switch off, I had made the assumption that he could too. And it, it really hit home to me how, you know, he's a poet, this kid, he's a really sensitive, sensitive, lovely kid. But he can't, he could not deal with it. So even if you want to protect your children, it's, it's really, really difficult really difficult. I'm also interested in how we can get so angry at this, at the news and, and this negativity that we're, we're kind of swamped in. How do we channel the, the anger into action? Well, well, my training as an actor is to, to sort of go into the emotions and, and another thing Larry Moss told me was that always preceding anger is pain. That there is no anger without pain. And so if we can teach ourselves and our kids to find out what is that pain, what, what is causing that pain. A, you can bring it down, the, the anger down a few notches, but you can also then perhaps do something about the pain or have a conversation about the pain or get some help for the pain. But you actually can't be angry unless there's something that's really deep down hurting you badly. Now, maybe that that's your earliest memory of human interaction was people being vile to each other. That happens to a lot of children. Um, but, you know, I can't think of an instance of anger where, that hasn't started with pain. And so, you know, there's a, there's a school of thought that, that tries to help with children, uh, teaching children. I saw something on, on Facebook recently about it. Each child has to say where they're at at the beginning of the day. And they'll say things like, I'm okay. And she'll say, really? And I'll say, well, I'm a bit sad because my, my big brother upset me this morning. she go, okay. So each child hears where the other child is at as well. So that's an empathy-creating situation because it's not just all these random people that you're surrounded by. We all probably remember being small children in school and feeling overwhelmed by all the other kids, you know. And, and so I think that's a really valuable thing to just, if someone's angry, child or adult, to just not react to the anger and say, gee, well, there's really something upsetting you. What is it? You know, so that it's, you don't meet anger with fear. You don't meet anger with aggression. You don't meet anger with defensiveness. You meet anger with kindness. And you say, 
is there something I can do to help with, with this that's making me so upset? I just realised now that I have so much pain that I feel that I haven't really thought about and understood where it's coming from and just how that manifests in our everyday interactions. Well, and we never talk about this stuff. You know, this is not, as you were saying, people are very embarrassed to talk about beauty and fruit. You know, that, that's also a very Australian yeah. generalisation here, but... You know, it might sound stupid, but it's sort of a really nice bird, you know. <laughs> <laughs> really pretty feather. Um, you know, it's seen as weak to find something beautiful. It's seen as, to even use the word beautiful, it is seen as a, a difficult word sometimes in our culture. And, you know, but, but if we don't push these things forward, if we don't push forward this appreciation of beauty wherever we find it or happiness wherever we find it, then we are overwhelmed by negativity. We are overwhelmed by, you know, the ugliness of life because we're not trained to see these beautiful things. Um, I was one of those mothers who was endlessly going, look at the lovely flower, look at the pretty bird, isn't that a gorgeous tree, look at the sunset, and my kids are going, look at them. But we took them to Queenstown once and, and we were going up the mountain for the first time. William was about nine and he, he went, this scenery is magnificent. <laughs> Oh, thank you, God. You know, so never give up, is my advice for children. Never, ever let them shut you down. Because that's part of particularly boys, what they do. They try and get a reaction. <laughs> you know, and they try and ignore what you're saying. But it's going in on some subliminal level. One, one, one more question, and it takes us back to storytelling and the stories we tell. And this idea that we, um, we can project new realities for ourselves, or we can recreate our realities by telling stories, which is a really amazing concept, I think, that we can live into our potential by portraying a certain way of living yeah. and becoming that. And, and I'd just love to hear your kind of reflections on the idea of the power of storytelling in that sense. Well, I think the notion of storytelling is, it, it shouldn't really be a thing. I mean, if we tell our own stories, if we share stuff about ourselves, you know, again, we're reducing ourselves to are you okay one day a year? Clean up Australia Day one day a year. Uh, Earth Hour one day a year. Uh, you know, I think that the stories need to be told by us every day. Um, wherever we have an opportunity to be kind to someone, you know, we have to tell that story that I'm a person who wants to embrace my fellow human beings. I want to make our experience together pleasant. I, I want to learn about you. But, you know, I'm also fearful that our kids are getting so much less human interaction than they need. And, and I, you know, feel for teachers because they're battling this all the time, that kids are so desensitised and switched off because they're getting so much information from screens. Um, yeah, so storytelling to me is is just sharing. It's just sharing our humanity and our feeling okay to do it, feeling okay to say, I've done a whole lot of things I'm really ashamed of. You know, and feeling okay to say, well, I wish I'd done things differently. You know, it's, it's, most of us have those feelings, but we've been taught to be frightened to share them because it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. Thank you, Lorraine. Thank, Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us for the Dumbo Feather podcast. 
This episode was produced by Beck Fari and me, Jane Nethercote. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for next month's conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. We'd absolutely love it if you'd let us know your thoughts by reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help us to find new listeners. Or you can send us an email with feedback to hello at dumbofeather.com. In the meantime, for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. For future School of Life events happening in your area, head to theschooloflife.com. This podcast was supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests in conservation projects and will never invest customers' money in fossil fuels. Where you bank every day makes a difference.